You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 44, Ali Bonaparte. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time at the beginning of August, 1798. Napoleon's expedition to Egypt had just suffered a terrible blow. A British fleet under Horatio Nelson triumphed at the Battle of the Nile. French naval power in the Mediterranean was all but destroyed. Bonaparte and his men were practically marooned in Egypt, with little hope of reinforcement or resupply. Napoleon vowed to press on, but with Nelson's victory, the odds of success shrank considerably. I'd like to start out this episode by talking about another French setback. It wasn't as dramatic as the Battle of the Nile, but the consequences would be nearly as grave. It occurred in the field of geopolitics. A powerful diplomatic backlash was forming against the French invasion, far beyond even the worst predictions of the policymakers in Paris. To understand this backlash, we need to zoom out and talk about what was going on back in Europe. By late summer, there were rumors swirling of another general war between the great powers. After less than a year of peace, there were already secret negotiations underway between the old regimes about forming a new coalition against France. This isn't quite as surprising as it might seem at first glance. As we've discussed in past episodes, the peace that ended the War of the First Coalition was not built to last. Nobody was happy with the current status quo on the continent, and the underlying strategic issues between France and her enemies remained unresolved. Everyone on both sides treated the Treaty of Campo Formio more like a temporary ceasefire than a basis for long-term stability. On an ideological level, the old regimes of Europe remained appalled by the execution of King Louis and the presence of an Enlightenment-inspired, radical government at the head of the greatest power in Europe. Reactionary French émigrés remained a presence at all the great royal courts, and they agitated for war against the Republic just as fiercely as ever. There seemed to be little appetite for peace in Paris either. The massive wartime armies of the Republic were not demobilized. Nearly half a million Frenchmen were still under arms. That was a massive number during wartime. It had absolutely no precedent during peace. With France surrounded by hostile powers, I don't think you can blame them for keeping their guard up. But you certainly can blame them for the way they chose to use those armies, 
as muscle to back up an aggressive, confrontational foreign policy. It wasn't just Egypt. Since the end of the War of the First Coalition, France had expanded its influence in Europe as well. For centuries, Switzerland had been one of the freest countries in Europe. By modern standards, we'd probably consider it a theocratic oligarchy, but there was a degree of democracy and liberty that set it apart from its more conservative neighbors. Just like in other more liberal European states, bitter conflicts developed in Switzerland near the dawn of the 18th century, between radicals who were inspired by the Enlightenment, sympathetic to the French Revolution, and wanted to push their country's systems in an even more progressive direction, and conservatives who believed the excesses of the French Revolution proved the folly of liberalism and democracy, and rallied to defend the old order and entrench ancient privileges. In the Netherlands, these two factions were called the Patriots and the Orangists, respectively. In Britain, it was the Radical Whigs versus the Tories and the Conservative Whigs. In Switzerland, the left-wing faction was known as the Unitaire, and their Conservative opponents as the Federalists. The conflict between the Unitaire and the Federalists finally boiled over. In the midst of a constitutional crisis, Unitaire lawmakers declared the foundation of a new state, the Helvetic Republic which would have a strong central government and a radical, Enlightenment-influenced constitution. They also petitioned the French government for military assistance to enforce the authority of this new state over recalcitrant Federalists. Paris was eager to oblige. On March 5th, French troops entered Switzerland. The Unitaire greeted them as allies, and together they easily crushed a small, hastily organized Federalist army. France had a new sister republic in the Alps. The other European powers saw this whole affair as a naked act of aggression by France, plain and simple. They believed Paris had targeted the Swiss government for subversion and overthrown it, as part of a deliberate plot to spread republican ideology and seize the country's strategic mountain passes. The French claimed they were acting within international norms, simply responding to a genuine domestic political crisis on their border by answering a lawful call for assistance from the legitimate Swiss government. The truth is probably somewhere in between. The Unitaire were not simply agents of France. They may have been partially inspired by the revolution, but they saw themselves as patriots, and their program had deep roots in domestic Swiss politics. However, I do find it unlikely that they would have acted as they did without at least some covert assurances of French support. Whatever the truth, what matters is how these events were perceived, and among the great powers of Europe, the consensus was that this was an act of republican aggression, which had upset the balance of power in France's favor. Around the same time, a major rebellion broke out in Ireland. It was spearheaded by the Society of United Irishmen, a revolutionary secret society which drew some of its inspiration from the Jacobins and enjoyed considerable French support. Members of the United Irishmen had participated in Lazar Osh's abortive invasion of the island at every level. The British had ruled Ireland for centuries, but they had never been popular. By the late 18th century, the island was under a kind of proto-apartheid system, which privileged the Protestant minority above the native Catholic population, and within the Protestant community, favored an even smaller minority of Anglicans, called the Anglo-Irish. 
This tiny clique of under 1% of the population dominated the political and economic system. The Anglo-Irish aristocracy lived as well as their cousins in prosperous England, while presiding over some of the worst poverty in Western Europe. The Irish Rebellion of 1798 is one of the darkest chapters of the entire Napoleonic Wars. No quarter was given, civilians were targeted, terror became a favorite weapon. What began as a struggle between the United Irishmen and the British and their loyalists often broadened into a struggle between entire communities. It was less like a typical 18th century war, more like something you'd see in more modern history, for instance in Bosnia or Syria. I'd like to do this story justice sometime down the road, but for now, suffice it to say that reports of the brutality underway in Ireland shocked all of Europe and contributed to the growing atmosphere of instability. It was certainly noted among the old regime great powers that the United Irishmen enjoyed French support. A demi-brigade of the French army managed to slip past the Royal Navy and land in Ireland to fight alongside the rebels. The rebel declaration of independence was dated in the French Republican calendar and signed by a French general. But the Irish rebels were not merely French puppets. They were responding to local conditions, and operating within a long, if hitherto dormant, tradition of resistance to British rule. France was at war with Britain, and home to a significant population of Irish exiles, so it was quite natural that they would aid the United Irishmen. But their involvement with the rebellion contributed to the wider perception among the great powers that the revolution remained a subversive, destabilizing influence, even in peacetime. This was the context in which Europe received the news of Bonaparte's invasion of Egypt, an atmosphere of uncertainty and growing fear of French expansion. Malta was a tiny out-of-the-way place which played little role in European geopolitics, but it provided yet another example of the French toppling an old, well-established government and replacing it with a radical Republican puppet regime. The conquest of Malta also set off alarm bells in a distant, unlikely place, the court of Emperor Paul I of Russia. Despite the religious differences between Orthodox Russia and the very Catholic Knights, they had a long and friendly relationship, sealed by common interests. The order needed allies in their eternal struggles against the Ottomans and other Muslim powers. For over a century, the Russians had dreamed of extending their influence south and west into the Mediterranean, and they shared many of the order's enemies. Emperor Paul was a particularly active patron of the knights. In gratitude for his support, the knights gave him the title of Grand Protector of the Order. This was mostly an honorary title, sort of like how a modern nonprofit might name a prominent politician or wealthy businessman as an honorary member of the board which is probably why the French didn't anticipate any significant reaction from Russia when they conquered the island. However, Paul took his role as protector very seriously. To him, it was more than just an honorary title. It was a symbol of Russia's ambitions in the Mediterranean, and of her long-standing desire to be taken seriously as one of the great powers. Paul offered asylum to the exiled knights, and many accepted. He promised to use his power to restore the order to its former position, and began rattling his saber in the direction of Paris. The Russians had sat out the War of the First Coalition. 
They had been approached by the other old regime powers, but were preoccupied with events closer to home, and faced no direct threat from the French Republic, and so they declined. The Russian army was the biggest in Europe, honed to deadly efficiency through years of conflict with the Poles and the Turks. Things might have played out very differently if Russia had been involved. Now there was talk of a new coalition, and the Russians were far more receptive. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. In planning the expedition to Egypt, Paris had badly underestimated the general anti-French mood in Europe, and the potential Russian reaction. But their worst miscalculation was of the Ottomans. Since all the way back in the 16th century, France had enjoyed a good relationship with the Turks, cemented by their common hatred of the Habsburgs. This friendship varied in its formality and closeness, but there was an enduring mutual sympathy and sense of shared purpose. As far as I can tell, the term unholy alliance was first coined to describe the Franco-Ottoman relationship. When French policymakers turned their attentions to Egypt, they had to reckon with how to handle the Turks. Remember, Egypt was legally part of the Ottoman Empire, but everyone knew this was a technicality that had little bearing on the actual governance of Egypt. For all practical purposes, the Mamluks were an independent power, who had a loose, complicated relationship with Constantinople. Still, the legal technicality of Ottoman sovereignty over Egypt was a problem looming over the expedition. The French debated offering to buy the territory from the Turks. Obviously, the Mamluks would never recognize such a transaction, and Egypt would still have to be taken by force, but it would placate the Ottomans and give the expedition a fig leaf of legal legitimacy. There were some obvious issues with this course of action. The French would be telegraphing their intentions to a foreign power, and what if Constantinople refused to make a deal? Was France really willing to let this entire geostrategic initiative hinge on getting a yes from the Sultan? In the end, the French decided it was better to ask forgiveness than permission. Between their long history of partnership with the Ottomans and the Mamluks' de facto independence, Paris felt it was safe to assume the Ottomans would be willing to acquiesce to a French conquest of Egypt. It was well known that Constantinople was unhappy with the status quo arrangement. In the 1780s, they had actually sent their own expedition to Egypt to try to bring the Mamluks under control. The French surmised that the Turks might even be glad to see France conquer the territory, turfing out the chaotic, incompetent Mamluk regime and placing Egypt under effective governance. In the end, all these rationalizations proved to be nothing more than self-delusion. 
If you ask me, the French had become so intoxicated with this idea of an Eastern Empire that they had developed a kind of tunnel vision. Serious concerns about the potential diplomatic fallout were dismissed far too quickly and easily. France and the Ottoman Empire may have been friends in the past, and the Sultan certainly did have his differences with the Mamluks, but Bonaparte's expedition was a massive, blatant act of aggression right in the Ottomans' backyard. Legally speaking, it was an invasion of the Ottoman Empire itself. How would it look if the Turks just rolled over and accepted it? Wouldn't it signal to the other great powers that Ottoman territory was up for grabs? Like so much about the expedition, the idea that the Ottomans would go along peacefully was pure fantasy. Sure enough, when news of Napoleon's arrival reached Constantinople, the Ottomans chose to treat it as an act of war. They began mobilizing their armies to march south and face Bonaparte. The wheels of the Ottoman state moved quite slowly during this period, and Egypt was a long way from the empire's heartland in the Balkans and Anatolia. It would be some time before Napoleon had to worry about Ottoman armies. There was another development that had an immediate impact. Ever since the Middle Ages, the Ottoman sultans claimed the title of Caliph, meaning the political and military leader of the entire Muslim faith. The position of caliph was not clerical or even necessarily theological, but it carried tremendous spiritual weight. The caliphs were successors of the Prophet Muhammad in his role as political leader of the early Muslim community. Despite, or maybe because, of the power of the title, the sultans rarely invoked their authority as caliphs. They were happy to list caliph among their numerous titles, adding its shine to the majesty of the Ottoman Sultanate, but they were much more circumspect in actually invoking its authority. Issuing a command to every Muslim in the world was a dangerous proposition. It could be viewed as a hostile act by any foreign state with a Muslim population, and if the Sultan invoked such a high authority and then was not obeyed, the prestige of the title would be diminished. In 1798, the Ottomans determined that the challenge from Bonaparte was grave enough to warrant this extraordinary step. In his capacity as caliph, Sultan Salem III ordered all faithful Muslims to oppose the French. It's hard to measure exactly how much of an impact this exceptional declaration had on popular opposition to Bonaparte. We would have to delve into the psychology of everyone who resisted, whether actively or passively, and there's no way to even begin doing that. We can say the Sultan's edict robbed the French of any hope of pretending they were in Egypt with the permission of the Ottoman state, as Napoleon had done at every turn so far. It's certainly crystal clear as a measurement of how seriously the Ottomans were taking this invasion. This wasn't some kind of token resistance or a weak diplomatic protest. They were coming back at the French with everything they had. This severe Ottoman response was breathlessly encouraged by the British. They promised troops, naval support, and most importantly, money. Britain had its own greedy designs on Ottoman territory and sovereignty, but for now, London saw it was best served by setting those aside and welcoming the Turks as allies against France. Britain was no longer fighting alone. As Bonaparte approached Cairo, the city was gripped by chaos. If any of the population had actually heard and understood Napoleon's lofty promises of a just conquest and brighter, more inclusive future, 
apparently they didn't believe them. Mobs took out their fear of the French on Christian residents of the city in spasms of rioting and looting. Murad Bey sent troops to seize the European quarter and levied a large collective fine on its residents before expelling them from Cairo. Part punishment, part evacuation, to prevent a massacre. Muslim religious leaders paraded relics through the streets, hoping to inspire the people to join in the resistance. The trade guilds sent men and equipment to the Mamluk army at Mbaba to help build fortifications. Wealthy merchants paid to raise units of militia. At the all-important Al-Azhar Mosque, special services were held daily, in which the scholars prayed for the defeat of the French. These were the elite of the native-born, Arabic-speaking population of Egypt, the people Napoleon had hoped to win over to his side with his promises of inclusive, meritocratic government and commercial prosperity. These people had lots of issues with the Mamluks. In the abstract, many of them probably would have agreed with Napoleon's proposals. And yet, here they were lining up alongside Murad Bey to resist the French. As they say, better the devil you know. The upper and middle classes of Cairo began preparations to flee the city, but the Mamluks ordered everyone to stay put, in order to prevent a panic. This decree was respected, until news of Murad Bey's defeat reached the city. Then the exodus began. The remaining residents of Cairo were braced for the worst, but Napoleon sent a conciliatory message into the city, asking to meet with the local notables, and expressing his wish to form a divan. Divan is originally a Persian word, but by the 18th century, it had long been in use all over the Middle East. It roughly means council, and refers to what we today would call a cabinet, the team of advisors and senior subordinates around a ruler. The word also has some connotations beyond its literal definition. It implies a degree of deliberative and inclusive government. A ruler who ignores his divan, or governs without one, would generally be considered a tyrant. Apparently, the eminent residents of Cairo were actually slightly impressed that Napoleon knew what a divan was, and that he aimed to respect this convention of Middle Eastern government. They sent a delegation to meet with Bonaparte, and he continued to strike a magnanimous tone, emphasizing that he had come as a liberator, with no intention of disrupting the city's economy or social or political structures. The delegation from the city formally offered the French permission to enter the city without resistance. This wasn't the result of Bonaparte's negotiating skills. Under the circumstances, they had no other choice. Apparently, the notables of Cairo left the meeting pleasantly surprised, and probably a little baffled. Under the circumstances, it was probably as good a first impression as could be expected. Bonaparte released a proclamation to the people of the city. Quote, People of Cairo, I am pleased with the way you have behaved. You have done well in not opposing me. I have come to destroy the whole race of Mamluks, to protect the commerce and the natives of this country. Let all who are afraid be reassured. Let those who have fled return to their homes. Let prayers be said today as usual. I wish them always to be said. Fear not for your women, your houses, your property, or, above all, your religion, which I love. End quote. Once again, those who actually read and understood this message seem not to have believed it. Few of those who had fled returned. Some accounts describe Cairo as nearly deserted. 
a few small crowds formed on July 24th to watch the French parade into the city, but most of the remaining Kyrenes were hunkered down, fearing the worst. The French were far from greeted as liberators, to borrow a phrase. Life would more or less return to normal in Cairo, but slowly, cautiously. Many residents would never get over their initial uneasiness with these strange foreign conquerors. For their part, French impressions of the city were also distinctly negative. According to one officer, quote, Cairo is no longer what it once was. It is as large as Paris and has many people. But what people? It is inhabited by filthy men, as lazy as the scum of Naples. The streets are narrow and winding, and the air is unwholesome. Most buildings are only miserable hovels. Their finest cuisine has nothing to please the refined European. Moreover, they lack that which would most delight a French guest. I mean, of course, wine, which is forbidden by their barbarous laws. The only thing we enjoyed in Cairo was riding the donkeys. End quote. Ironically, Egyptians had much the same impression of the French. European hygiene standards were, to put it delicately, far more relaxed than Middle Eastern ones, and even by their own standards, Napoleon's soldiers were far from paragons of cleanliness. Another French officer was even harsher on the city, quote, Upon entering Cairo, what do you find? Narrow streets, unpaved and filthy, shadowy houses often in ruins. Even the public buildings seem like dungeons. Shops are no better than stables. The air is filled with dust and the reek of garbage. It is a place devoid of human comforts or proper living space. End quote. General Marmont was a bit kinder. He said Cairo was very beautiful, but then added, for a Turkish city. That was easy for him to say. Bonaparte and the other generals had taken up residence in the palaces abandoned by senior Mamluks. In his famous proclamation to the Egyptian people, Napoleon had asked by what right the Mamluks occupied such lavish homes. He and his generals now took them by right of conquest. Napoleon had hoped to rely on the Divan, that council of prominent Kyrenes, to fill him in on the political landscape of the city and help out with basic governance, but they quickly proved to be of limited use. The notables of Cairo seemed reticent willing and able to engage in a bare minimum of collaboration to appease their conquerors and maintain basic order, but no more. It has been speculated that they feared the Mamluks would come back someday and mete out retribution to anyone who helped the French. Or maybe they simply disapproved of their new overlords and wanted the invasion to fail. Perhaps they were simply too accustomed to living under an insular, tyrannical regime and unused to this whole idea of collaborative government. Napoleon was a stranger in a strange land. He desperately needed help and advice from people who knew the country. As he learned he couldn't rely on his divan, he turned increasingly to the foreign quarter, which was home to a small community of travelers, merchants, adventurers, and the types of eccentrics, seekers, and ne'er-do-wells who you might imagine would voluntarily exile themselves to this ancient city. Most of the non-Arab, non-Mamluk residents of Cairo were Greek, Armenian, or Jewish, and came from elsewhere in the Ottoman Empire. But it was a diverse community, which also included a smattering of Western Europeans, 
mostly British, French, and Italian. Since the moment the French arrived in Cairo, these foreign residents proved much more welcoming than the native Arabic-speaking Egyptians. Most of them were merchants, and open to doing business with anyone who had cash. And more than that, the French and the residents of the foreign quarters were kindred spirits, fellow outsiders in this ancient country. The gulf of language and culture between the two groups was much easier to bridge. Many of the Western Europeans even spoke French. French soldiers quickly gravitated towards foreign-owned shops, cafes, and restaurants, and they commented on the friendliness and openness of the foreign merchants. While Napoleon was struggling to rule this massive, strange city, desperate for insight and assistance, it was quite natural that he too looked towards the foreigners. A French expatriate merchant became one of his closest advisors. A colorful Greek named Bartholomeos managed to get himself appointed chief of police, and promptly stacked the force with his fellow countrymen. Bartholomeos became a familiar sight around Cairo, parading through the streets on a donkey, showing off his new position with an ostentatious gold-trimmed uniform of his own design and an oversized jewel-encrusted scimitar. Clearly, he was quite proud of himself, but to the rest of the city, he seems to have been more of a figure of fun than one of authority. Napoleon arrived in Egypt with a lot of enlightened plans and lofty rhetoric about introducing meritocracy and finally including the long-disenfranchised local people in the governance of their own country. But within weeks of his conquest of Cairo, the new French administration was already taking on a distinctive foreign flavor. This development was a very bad sign for the future of the French occupation. Napoleon's new friends in the foreign quarters undoubtedly did know the city. Native-born or not, they lived and conducted business in Cairo. Merchants tend to be especially good students of local news and events. However, they were not as well integrated into the fabric of the city as a native-born Arabic-speaking Kyrene. Those who had lived in the city for decades, and even those who were born in Cairo to foreign parents, were still always known as foreigners. They had their own communities, their own neighborhoods, and even their own designated socioeconomic roles to play. Napoleon had no hope of governing the city even remotely effectively without the help of the foreigners, and yet, whenever he relied upon them, he further distanced his new regime from the vast majority of Egyptians. Bonaparte was making the same discovery that eventually dawns on every liberal imperialist. Enlightened ideals are fundamentally incompatible with the project of imposing one's will on a foreign country. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Soon after his arrival in Cairo, Napoleon made a fateful visit to Al-Azhar, Cairo's famous mosque and religious school. This was unquestionably the most important religious institution in all Egypt, arguably in all of Sunni Islam. He carried on a semi-public discussion with its leaders, during which he once again emphasized that he was a friend of Islam, who had come as a liberator. He even made a somewhat novel argument that the invasion was ordained by Allah. Quote, the French would never have been able to conquer people of the true faith if their leader had not been under the special protection of the Prophet. End quote. He was, of course, speaking of himself in the third person. Napoleon also tried to show off his understanding of Muslim theology. He didn't make any errors, which is pretty amazing for someone who had only read the Quran for the first time a few months ago, and he came away believing the imams of al-Azhar were impressed. They may have been surprised, but other sources suggest they didn't find this skinny young foreigner terribly impressive. Once again, Bonaparte could only speak through his translators and it seems they rendered his words into crude vernacular Arabic rather than the high-register formal dialect Islamic scholars used when speaking about religion. And even if Napoleon somehow spoke flawless Arabic, this would be like a Middle Eastern Muslim reading an unofficial Arabic translation of the Bible a few times, then going to the Vatican and trying to wow the cardinals with his insights into Catholic theology. Napoleon was a highly intelligent man, but he was hopelessly out of his depth. Bonaparte's visit to Al-Azhar was about much more than holding a seminar on politics and religion. There was an important, tangible concession he hoped to extract from the imams, official recognition of his legitimacy as ruler of Egypt. Al-Azhar was the most respected institution in the entire country, in their own way, the imams carried more weight than the Mamluks, who theoretically ruled over them. No other distinct group in the country had greater stature or moral authority. A stamp of approval from al-Azhar would be a priceless tool in securing the French occupation and the compliance of the people of Egypt. That anti-French declaration from the Ottoman Sultan, in his capacity as caliph, was an absolute disaster, which hung like a storm cloud over all of Napoleon's dealings with the Muslim faith. Al-Azhar was one of the very few institutions in the entire world with the gravitas to mitigate some of that damage. It surely must have occurred to Napoleon that the future of the expedition, perhaps his entire destiny, might turn on the outcome of this negotiation. The imams were receptive to Bonaparte's overtures. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, this scenario of foreign conquerors becoming a legitimate ruling class had plenty of precedents in Middle Eastern history. Indeed, the Mamluks themselves were just such a group. The only stumbling block was religion. The Mamluks may not have been pious, but at least they were nominally Sunni Muslims. The clerics of Al-Azhar informed Napoleon in no uncertain terms that they would only confer legitimacy on his government if he and his troops converted. Given Napoleon's loud, frequent declarations of sympathy for Islam, it wasn't so unreasonable to think he might contemplate converting, especially with control of Egypt on the line. 
Centuries before, the Protestant king Henry of Navarre was faced with a similar proposition, convert to Catholicism in exchange for recognition as king of France. Good King Henry famously answered, Paris is worth a mass, and took the deal. That fateful baptism changed the course of history. Was Cairo worth a Juma, a Friday evening service at Al-Azhar? Was he willing to take such a bold step out of the European world and truly commit to his dreams of Eastern Empire? Even in this age of enlightenment, many in Europe would be horrified. Converting to Islam would massively complicate any ambitions he had back in France, if not shatter them completely. Mainstream 18th century Islamic law did not recognize reconversion. If Napoleon embraced the faith, then recanted, he wouldn't go back to being recognized as a Christian infidel, but would take on the status of apostate, a universally reviled class in the Muslim world. If Napoleon embraced Islam, there would be no walking back. Europe would close to him, but whole new worlds might open up. Weighing the decision, Napoleon thought of his idol, Alexander the Great. Quote, After Alexander arrived in Egypt, he walked for fifteen days into the desert, from Alexandria to the Temple of Amun, and was declared the son of Jupiter by the priestess. He demonstrated that he understood these people. He played on their deepest inclination, which was for their religion. This did more to assure his conquest than if he built twenty castles and brought in a hundred thousand Macedonian troops. End quote. For the success of his mission, the fulfillment of his ambitions, and in the memory of his heroes from the past, he decided he would accept the imam's offer. Napoleon Bonaparte would convert to Islam. He had chosen Egypt and the East. What would Josephine think? Given all of his statements about respecting and accommodating Islam over the past few months, to the Egyptian people, to local notables, and to his own officers and troops, I think it's entirely possible that Napoleon was already considering this eventuality, and had been laying the groundwork all along. But the offer from Al-Azhar extended to more than just one man. They demanded the entire French army convert, not just its commander. Napoleon assured them he could make this happen by convincing the army it was a nominal, purely symbolic matter of little importance. This was not good enough for the imams. They knew they couldn't dictate what the men believed in their hearts, but they would not tolerate the visible hypocrisy of a purely symbolic conversion. If Napoleon wanted the approval of Al-Azhar, the entire French army had to not only convert, but adhere to the consequences of that conversion at least in public. That would mean adopting a whole host of Muslim practices. This was a very long list, but there were two big, controversial items right at the top. Circumcision and abstinence from alcohol. The two greatest pleasures of the French army stood between Napoleon and his ambitions. Drinking was as much a part of the life of a European soldier as drill or musketry. Even Frederick the Great, who made an art and science of psychologically breaking his soldiers, warned his generals that Prussian troops would mutiny if their alcohol ration was interrupted. And even today, you would not find many people eager to let a clergyman take a knife to their genitals. I would imagine that was doubly true in the days before anesthesia. There would be no way to sell such profound changes in lifestyle as a purely symbolic, unimportant formality. 
The troops might have been persuaded to swear some foreign oath with their fingers crossed behind their backs, but it would be a very different matter to convince them to forsake their wine and brandy, get their private parts sliced, and actually live as Muslims. Catholicism, Protestantism, Judaism, and any other religion were officially all dead within the Republican military, but everyone in the French army was aware that many soldiers, and even some officers, harbored private religious convictions that didn't quite fit with the official, enlightened, anti-clerical ideology of the army. There were men serving in the ranks who had left the clergy during the revolution, or received some training at a monastery or seminary before leaving to pursue a different path, and they often functioned as kind of unofficial chaplains, tending to the spiritual needs of any of their comrades who hadn't entirely abandoned the old faith. I'm not sure we can even call them Catholics, because they received no direction or oversight from Rome, and most of them presumably embraced at least some of the ideology of the revolution. But whatever these unofficial chaplains were offering, it was something much closer to the old ways than the cold, often eccentric, worship of rationalism embraced by their leaders, and there seems to have been some appetite for it. This may be a bit surprising given the savage conflicts between the Republican armies and Catholic rebels only a few years before, but most of the people of France, on both sides of the divide, were thoroughly sick of civil conflicts between conservative Catholics and enlightened reformers. And so, the overwhelmingly secular army leadership seemed to have reached a tacit understanding with these unofficial chaplains and their flocks. Religious practice would be tolerated, as long as it remained discreet, apolitical, and preached obedience and loyalty to the Republic, despite its disputes with the Vatican. Anyway, to return from our digression, Napoleon and the other Republican leaders depicted their armies as ideological soldiers. Crusaders of the Enlightenment, who fought well because they believed in their mission, which included the eradication of what they deemed superstition. But the truth was much more complicated, and everyone knew it. Asking the troops to mouth some anti-clerical slogans was one thing. Asking them to publicly embrace and live by the teachings of an entirely different religion was something else. Especially if it meant giving up a drink and taking a knife to their manhoods. Napoleon knew this was a bridge too far for his men, but the imams of al-Azhar were not willing to budge. The two sides went back and forth until finally a compromise was reached. Al-Azhar would issue a ruling identifying the French as allies of Islam. Obviously this fell far short of recognizing them as legitimate rulers of Egypt, but at least it might help undermine some of the religious justifications invoked by Napoleon's enemies, and help the French maintain order within the city. It wasn't nothing, but it was a poor substitute for the declaration Napoleon had hoped to secure. And so, Bonaparte would not convert to Islam. Despite his affinity for Muhammad, and his desire to ingratiate himself with the people of Egypt, Napoleon was fundamentally a practical man, and if his personal conversion wouldn't be enough to secure the support of Al-Azhar, it wasn't worth it. Still, I find this turning point in Napoleon's career fascinating. When you look at his openness to this idea, you can't help but wonder about potential counterfactuals. He took the first step down a very different road, one that could have led any number of places if he'd chosen to follow it. If the single most important historical figure of this entire period of European history had abandoned the West and tied his fate to the Middle East, 
the entire 19th century likely would have unfolded very differently. Personally, I don't think this theoretical Muslim Napoleon would have had much better luck in realizing the dream of an Eastern Empire, but who knows? A lot of real serious historians frown on this kind of talk, but there are so many fascinating possibilities, I can't help but entertain them. Despite the disappointment at Al-Azhar, Napoleon would continue to court Muslim support and paint himself as a champion of Islam. Although he never actually converted, he sometimes found it convenient to imply otherwise, sometimes signing letters or declarations as Napoleon Ali Bonaparte. This was the 18th century. There was no law or regulation to stop you from calling yourself whatever you wanted. But taking on a new Muslim name is very common for converts, and Ali is a particularly popular choice. It's pretty clear what Napoleon Ali Bonaparte is intended to suggest. Obviously, he had strategic reasons to call himself Ali, but I have to wonder if Napoleon maybe had a Muslim name already picked out, and just liked the idea so much that he couldn't resist trying it out a few times, even though he never actually converted. However he tried to spin it, the failure of Napoleon's overtures to Al-Azhar was another blow to the expedition's chances. The Army of the Orient still hadn't lost a battle, but somehow, that dream of an Eastern Empire seemed to be slipping further away. That's all for now. Until next time, thanks for listening.